0: Welcome to the Atomic Hobo, everyone. I'm Julie McDowell, and this week, to celebrate marking our 50th episode, we have a guest on the podcast. Those of you who are connoisseurs of Cold War podcasts may know him already, but for everyone else, I am very happy to introduce you to Christoph Andresen's of the Eastern Border Podcast, a weekly show which looks at life in the Soviet Union and examines its legacy.
1: Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the eastern border. See, this time I wanna... So I
0: spoke to Chris Stapps from his studio in Riga, and we talked about his and his parents' memories of the nuclear threat behind the Iron Curtain, the shelters of the sirens, the civil defence training and propaganda dished out to every citizen, even kids. We talked of how the West was portrayed by the Soviets, and he told me some things about Soviet life which were... Weird, unsettling, even charming. And yes, we laughed. I'm happy to say that Kristaff shares my opinion that you need to bring some black humour into this topic. You need to deploy sarcasm now and then, or you can easily be overwhelmed by the horror of it. So I'm going to bring you our conversation here. It was so lengthy that uh, even after substantial editing, I find that I have to break it into two parts. So this week and the next, we'll let Christophs of the eastern border take us back behind the Iron Curtain. I'll start with asking about your childhood. Could you tell us when you were born? I assume you were born in Riga, is that correct?
1: Yeah, I was born in 1989, so I only only spent a few years in the Soviet Union, but I, I was here during all of this era. I grew up in the era when we just got introduced to capitalism, when all the economy collapsed and when everything went to hell because... The transfer between uh, the socialist system and the capitalist system was extremely hard for our country because the salaries collapsed instantly and then the prices had to adjust for the market values. So in a fortnight everyone in my country became super poor. So that was the that was the worst issue about all of this. But um, but yeah, then, then I studied history and, and I started to gather stories from my parents and everything and you know, what they told me. So that's how I learned about this and that's what my show is about because I, I want to go in deep into the people's stories about, you know, how everything went down, you know.
0: Uh, it's quite interesting that you say it was a hard time in Latvia when the Soviet Union collapsed because in the West we all assumed, perhaps quite arrogantly, that everyone was uh, happy to be liberated and everyone was free, but... As you say, there were some hard times there. Yes,
1: emotionally it was very awesome. It was great because, well, we struggled for it. We wanted our own country, you know, after years of oppression and our language being prohibited and oppressed and our culture, you know, being disturbed by the Soviets because we have this national song and dance festival and, you know, our traditional stuff and and the Soviets kind of forced their own things into it. And every document was handled in Russian. So they tried to kind of oppress us. And we were treated like second-rate citizens. And then when we got our freedom, that was okay. But the economical issues, the the economy itself, it was pretty bad. We didn't have it mm-hmm. as bad as in Russia in 1997, 1998. We pulled it together. We didn't have a default. Yet I remember the, the times when, uh, when, for example, my, my mom at one point made about like what um about 15 pounds or 20 25 dollars per month it was like 20 lats at that point and, and like lat was somewhere between pound and dollar but the prices were really high and everything got super expensive because it was just like you crash into us into this because in the planned economy the salaries had been set and the prices had been set and then you go down to where you know prices match the kind of your output and um and everything just just smashed instantly it was it was pretty bad for a Mm -hmm. while up until we joined the eu that as well i think i think that that at end that when we joined the eu um kind of slowly ending by the early 2000s but the 90s are still remembered as the years of crime then corruption and and basically everyone was just trying to survive because Mm -hmm. you know once you get once you get thrown into the capitalist system the people who are the most adjusted to it are the guys who were criminals in the Soviet era, you know. Mm -hmm. As the people who had been, like, you know, doing this smuggling business and uh, speculation, which was a crime in the Soviet Union, yeah, those guys knew something about capitalism while we did not know anything at all. So those guys, well, with huge criminal ties, basically ran the whole economy for about 10 years or so.
0: Now, um, as you say, you were born uh, towards the end of the Cold War, so perhaps you don't have any memories of... The threat of nuclear war, but maybe your your parents do. Do you oh, have I anything do. you I, could I, tell us?
1: I do because uh, for one, uh, that's one of my first childhood memories. Because as as my parents were taking me home, uh, I just remember that there were like black uh, black helicopters flying over my head, even here in Riga, to Ljepa, where where uh, the Baltic Sea fleet of the Soviet Union was was kind of kind of based. in. but yeah, so all these things kind of kind of still stayed because all my parents were given these self-defense books and the kind of warnings about what to do when when the nuclear war comes and i grew up reading those books and i gathered their stories but yeah we weren't as much worried about our side dropping the nukes because well there's a joke about how the soviet space program got started that you know the only thing that they could hit was space so they they decided to do that (laughs) Uh, we were more worried about some some uh, overzealous american general starting the whole nuclear war on us because the soviet union kind of well they, they had a lot of tanks and whatever but they were really lagging behind especially in the late cold war and the missile technology they just couldn't hit their targets with reliability you see and so uh we knew that if like they had a lot of them that that's why the Soviets had a lot of the missiles because they couldn't hit anything but Mm -hmm. most of them would be destroyed anyways and we also knew that the soviet government well they didn't really value human life as such they were Mm -hmm. just up there up there sitting that you know they they wanted to use these missiles much like north korea today in a way because there was a more of a threat thing but i doubt that the soviet leaders themselves ever wanted to start a massive nuclear war i mean they had their own interests which mostly involved you know stealing things and grabbing things for their own well-being because Stalin in Stalin's era yeah then I would believe that Stalin would have started a full out thermonuclear devastation of the planet because that was Stalin but after Stalin we only got uh, more or more incompetent leaders who even didn't care about their own country and all they wanted to do is lined up their own pockets and live the most comfortable yeah. lives ever
0: okay um, did you have a, a nuclear bunker or fallout shelter beneath your apartment block or in the
1: neighbourhoods? Oh, uh, we didn't have those here in Latvia, and even even in Russia it was kind of weird. I know that there is the second Moscow Metro, which is one mm-hmm. layer below the standard Mas- Moscow Metro, because that one was reserved for uh, the kind of the VIPs of the era. But over here, uh, bunkers we had some. But in the Baltics, they didn't really advertise them as much. We have had some bunkers, and they're on the outskirts of the city, but not not below my apartment building. no. they were set up in the center at some point, but a lot of them have been uh, have been sadly filled out by concrete as the Soviet army left. But we had a few, we had a few, okay. but but we were we were instructed in our school books to dig our own ones because, like I said, I've gathered a bunch of information about how the civil defense class which was in every school and in every university like well every kid ever studying something had to learn how to dig your own dig your own trench diagonally and and you know make it make your bunker comfortable because <laughs> the government really didn't didn't build at least not here as much for the population they built huge bunkers for the government but the population mm-hmm. was supposed to basically, this is what you do. And, you know, if you have time, just grab everyone on a Saturday and go and work together for your underground bunker. It's going to be fun, fun for the whole family, yeah. you know, spending your, your, your weekend together with your parents and everyone just digging underground bunkers in case capitalists bombed you.
0: <laughs> that's that's quite similar to Britain. In, in Britain, there were no bunkers for the population. It was a case of, as you said, dig it yourself if you want your own bunker. There was yeah. nothing at all for the population. So I know that Moscow had, you know, the Moscow metro, they had, you could shelter in the Moscow metro or the Prague metro, for example. And that's where people, the population could shelter. So there was nothing like that in Latvia for ordinary people.
1: No, no, no. We also we also don't have metro here in Riga. Right. Because we fought against it, because at the time metro was built, uh, the Soviets did somewhat of a colonizing policy here. You see, they wouldn't use the local workforce to build the metro. They just Wanted to, because there's a process called Russification, which kind of worked as the Soviet Russia worked somewhat as a colonial empire in the sense that they would send a lot of people away from their center to the provinces to try to make sure that the local population, local language, and that worked here. And the Caucasus kind of would become a minority in a way, because mm-hmm. at the time when when they tried tried to plan to build the Riga metro, it was about 50-50. In in Latvia, fifty percent Russian, fifty percent Latvian, and if and we protested against this because they would again use people from outskirt towns of of uh, Russia somewhere in the middle of Siberia to just send in more people here and make us a minority. That way, they kind of use this as a tool to oppress their kind of their their satellite nations and everything mm-hmm. that the same the same by the way work was true for east germany and czechoslovakia because when every time some major projects happen in those countries it wasn't the locals doing the job it was you know experts from soviet union together with the workforce yes. from the Soviet Union just sent in so uh, we don't actually have a metro system here we have some remnants okay. of it because they started building it we have some nice little holes but as a whole no we don't because what's hard to understand sometimes for for people who haven't like lived here and born here is that well for your governments people were were seen as you know something valuable because you know it's a democracy over here people were mostly seen as a resource it was mm-hmm. not it was not seen as the most necessary thing to save unless you were in the army of course army i'm sure had their own bunkers and thing because we had a lot of them um, We've had a lot of missile bases here in the Baltics. I think we had three in Latvia and then uh, four in in Lithuania and and a couple in Estonia as well. And uh, people from the military who served in the Soviet military, yeah, they they would know where to go. But the rescuing civilians was never the Soviet priority unless they did it themselves, really.
0: Okay, I understand. So, um, ordinary people then in Riga, if they wanted a nuclear shelter, they had to, to dig it themselves. These civil defence booklets that you have, they gave instructions then on how to build a shelter?
1: Yes, and what's the funny, what is the funny part is that they were uh, distributing civil defence classes and uh, how they explain, but they're really quality, quality stuff, because they mm-hmm. truly explain how how a nuclear wave will go over you, how the light will burn you, how much the radiation will in. It's all full of scientific data. And they recommend that you dig diagonally into the ground and then you secure the area around you. It was very important. I mean, if you'd actually done that, then, then, yeah, you'd be pretty well protected because those classes, they took them very seriously. I mean, in one Mm -hmm. of my episodes, I spoke about the pioneer movement, kind of like Boy Scouts around the planet, right? And, and they were taught how to do this specifically. And, and in various books for, for you know, teenagers, because I remember one, uh, one book that I read when I was a kid, it was called For Men Up Until the Age of 16. And that involved a whole chapter about how to secure your family in case of a nuclear war. You know, you go to, you know, some countryside home or whatever, wherever you have your little tiny plot of land and how you make sure that in case of a massive war, you can just sit there, dig in and, and try to survive this. Also also included all kinds of instructions on pickling stuff and surviving because you know you were supposed to do this but I don't really know anyone who actually tried to do that because we didn't like our government that much yeah however if you'd followed those that would be that, that would be pretty safe i think because they, they put a lot of effort in this because, you know, they had to show up the people writing these books, they had to show to their higher-ups how everything mm-hmm. is super efficient and everything, and the quality of those books kind of hid the fact that no one actually wanted to do that.
0: So um, if you were following these instructions, I assume you had as people who lived in the city would have to go out to the country to dig these shelters, is that correct?
1: Yes, but you see, in the Baltics here, it's quite, quite similar. I mean, um, well, to, to imagine this, where uh, Riga is kind of Kind of similar uh, climate and an area to uh, kind of I, I presume it's northern northern Britain, mm-hmm. kind of like Inverness. I think. Oh yes, yes. We're, we're kind of like that, and we're about fifty nine percent forests as well. So we're very forested. We're we're uh, very. City called here, and it's not that easy to do stuff. But everyone, even in Riga today, because half of our Latvians population live in our capital, so basically Mm -hmm. everyone has some sort of a countryside home to go back to. You know, the Russians call them dachas, but this is where you know where your grandma goes to to to, to, you know, into her garden and and just just hang out there because 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 you know, uh, literally, there's two million of us Latvians, and like a million of us live in Riga. It's kind of an overcrowded city in in a way. (laughs) the baltics at
0: least okay so the advice was go out to your your uh countryside home and dig into the ground diagonally on under your countryside under home? your
1: yes 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 you you fortify your basement you dig in deep you make calls for the air you provide that you have another well underground that is not contaminated that then you should like line up that that bunker with concrete and maybe with some plates of lead and what what really struck me the most is that and these instruction books, and this is something that in the capital capital societies couldn't imagine, is that they give specific brands of concrete that you should use, you know, because there are <laughs> okay. only like three that the government produces and they specifically state that, oh, out of those three, this one is the best one for your bunker. And it works throughout <laughs> the Soviet Union because, you know, there's only well, that kind of concrete available anyways.
0: And did people have uh, the money to buy these supplies? was oh, it quite which... were they readily available
1: they were actually that's one of the few things that were available because the military used them as well because you see then we then we turn to the economic aspects here because getting uh getting some like meat was super rare and quality produce was super rare, so and just everyone just had these houses just to survive, basically, because you couldn't like buy fresh fruit or vegetables in, in the in the market or, or in the stores at any point. It was just lacking from the stores being a deficit product. However, of these concrete things and these basic survival things and like gas masks and all that stuff that was a ready available supply. Just mm-hmm. that, just that everyday products and everything, all that went to the army. For example, my friend here. Uh, he he lived he he comes from the city of Valmiera and there they had a massive um, kind of meat producing plant. However, all the sausages that plant produced were never sold in the Baltics or like sold anywhere except maybe Moscow for a bit. But that all went to the army. So the trick was that if you wanted to build something, you had to wh- find a way how to snag it. You know from Blatnoy that that kind of you had to know someone in the correct factory to grab some things. The thing is that, well, uh, obviously a lot of people, you know, who managed to find this concrete which is available for the civil defense purposes, but then you still, people wanted to trade for it using vodka and services mostly, uh, but then you have to be sneaky about it. And people used it to bring, bring, build their own garages and try to build their own homes instead of, you know, digging in, actually.
0: Now, this, the civil defense advice which told you how to build your shelter... Um the advice which was given to British people told you how to build a shelter, but it also had some very horrible and sinister advice about how to dispose of bodies or how to bury bodies in the garden. Did Latvian advice or Soviet advice contain things like that about no, what to do with nothing, dead ever. bodies?
1: No. No. Because was, uh, it was just
0: about building the shelter.
1: It was about building the shelter and how to survive their community and, and like every workplace too had their own um Every workplace had their own posters about how can you survive with your, your with your family and friends and your colleagues at work and whatever, and how to use everything, how to deal with illnesses and whatnot. Nothing really about how to dispose of bodies. Because, okay. again, no negative news allowed. Nothing negative went into the news, and that was, I considered, de- that was considered demoralizing. Nothing negative was allowed. Like I said, they even... Um, if, if your listeners have listened to the, or, or watched the Chernobyl series and listened to maybe my Chernobyl stories, it's the same thing. Uh, nothing negative in the news or propaganda. Nothing about how to dispose of dead bodies. Nothing about how to do anything, only how to prevent something, how to protect something. There is nothing in the news about the fact that we might even lose a single person at all. So it's, right. it's kind of bizarre world because the, so we in the Soviet Union lived in this sense of a total positivity only the good stuff was reported in the news. And this this went as so far as to as to this this Cold War nuclear war preparation. And always mm-hmm. always in all these preparations too, it was stated that the Soviet Union would never launch a nuclear assault themselves. It was only about when the evil capitalists do that. Well, the real reason behind this was that the Soviet Union wasn't really capable of doing said thing. But but yeah. That, that, was, that was like they always were pro- portrayed as the winning side, the strong side, right. the side that only defends themselves. It's a part of brainwashing in a way.
0: because yeah, You always yeah. have
1: to think only positive things about living in the Soviet Union.
0: Well, in the West, in Britain, for example, the, the British Medical Association, which is the, the trade union for doctors, they would speak out about nuclear war and say if it happens, all the hospitals won't be able to cope and there will be, there'll be millions of people dead. I assume there was no such warning in the Soviet Union. Was there any warning that there will be millions of people dead in a oh, nuclear no. attack? Not at Nothing all. Nothing like that?
1: Uh, my grandma, who was a doctor at there, she, she had some information about how it would go down and what would happen. And she knew that there would be millions of dead. Except that in the Soviet Union, nobody nobody really cared. Mm. To put it kind of lightly, and and just you know, people really kind of made jokes about it because, well, there was the civil defense subject in universities and, and schools, and there was this joke that it was basically impossible to fail at this subject. But there was a legend running around the institutes that one of the students managed to get you know a failing grade in the civil defense class because he answered the question. <clears throat> what kind of uh, poisonous poisonous substances there are name the types of them. And, and he just bravely, apparently answered, well, the ones made in our fatherland and the imported ones. So, so <laughs> it's like, we always made dark jokes about the situation because see, seeing how the Soviet general response to massive tragedies were seeing how they dealt with this, not like anyone had a mass massive hope on this because another joke went like, well, what, what do you do in a proper way? How do you shield yourself from the war? And, and what happens in a nuclear war? Well, you know, you, you take out you take your like white sheet, you put it on your head, and then you walk to the closest graveyard. And, you know, why bother? It's going to be cleaner that yeah. way. Yeah.
0: So um, even though the media or the news didn't say, you know, millions would die in a nuclear war, I assume people still knew that's what would happen. People still knew the reality of a nuclear attack. Is that yes. right?
1: Yes, because... That's one one of the skills that the Soviet Union kind of taught you because you couldn't believe stuff that's written in the press. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of reading between the lines skill that we still kind of possess today in a way which kind of separates us from, from the rest of the world, I suppose, because you see, uh, I did an episode on the women's magazines of the Soviet Union, and it's like this whole magazine, uh, the Soviet woman, it was from the years 1951, 1916 one, it was all full with how glorious life is for the women in the Soviet Union and how can they achieve anything and everything They're like super positive and super nice, but in the end there's this recipe section, you know the recipe section because that yeah. uh, attitude towards women, and that recipe section contains basically only how to make you know stews from pigs' brains or whatever, how to do <laughs> things from sub products, how to like make do with with little stuff that we wouldn't consider, well, very edible these days. And then you can kind of look at the contrast between how everything is so awesome in the Soviet era. However, the recipes in the recipe section are only about, you know, what we could today consider emergency foods and how to survive on them. That alone shows the general kind of contrast between what the newspapers were allowed to say and what really happened. The same happens Mm -hmm. in this case, because, you know, of course, when when the nuclear war comes, we shall all be victorious, but you know, dig your own stuff so when our government told us that yeah obviously we should we shall be victorious everyone was like yeah sure uh well no one's gonna help us we're uh we're kind of screwed either way uh hmm
0: so um these um civil defense booklets they told you to dig your own shelter they gave you instructions did they talk about what would happen after the war after you emerged from your shelter was there anything about? What happened yes. Afterwards? Yes. You
1: were. You were. Spe- you were specifically told that when the Red Army arrives to pick you up, you must join them and help them in every way possible, and that they shall take you to safety because the Red Army shall know what to do, or though that, or the nice, friendly people from the, you know, KGB, the friendly guys, for mm-hmm. there to help you. <laughs>
0: Can you tell me a bit about sirens? Were there sirens all over the cities in the Soviet Union to obviously alert you to a, to a nuclear attack? And do they still exist, for example, in Riga? Yeah, yeah,
1: they do. And we still have, like, tests of them. And the tests are now publicized, obviously, but it's still kind of creepy because if you hadn't, you know, reading, if you hadn't been reading last day's newspaper, or something you would never know when those mm-hmm. sirens pop up. But they had those, they had massive, massive sirens, which were also kind of loudspeakers. Also, what the Soviets did was that they had a radio tuned to one channel only and only one channel in every hospital room, every public building ever. And you were supposed to turn on your radio at homes as well because this one channel was the government's kind of, you know, uh, kind of like your BBC thing, except Mm -hmm. for the Soviet government. And that had to be on at certain times of the day. And you would like hear news from it. Uh, but that was the station which would automatically turn on if something would happen and then you would kind of receive some more instructions through this radio.
0: That's quite interesting. The So a radio station, it was tuned into every flat and you were supposed to tune into it upon hearing a siren. Yes. Is that, is that correct? Or, or at a certain point every day you had to tune in to get the news? And well, Were people obliged to
1: do it? Well, people had to. It was, you. Right. Could, you couldn't turn this radio off. It was just. Oh, there. you couldn't turn it off. Okay. No, no, no. It was just. It was just silent. And but you had to have it on at all uh-huh. times. And you know, sometimes, like, well, for example, when Stalin died, that's how they reported it through there. It right. was supposed to be on at all times. And of right. course, there's a lot of rumors that, well, if you're so, if you were someone important, then the KGB would just plant bugs into this one mandatory radio transmitter on the receiver so that they could like listen to you. But about the radio things, yeah, there were a lot of, like, radio amateurs too. That was a big thing because the Soviets basically planted a huge kind of a dis- distortion device. Uh, I think so. It's that. I'm, I'm sorry. My English is not perfect. but uh, But, yeah, they basically distorted everything that came in here from the outside world. And then there were, the, the, there were these a lot of radio amateurs because, you know, engineering clubs were, were encouraged schools. So a lot of people just joined these radio amateur stuff uh, clubs and started, you know, listening to AM, AM radio themselves. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty interesting. But, but, yeah, you had to have this one radio on at all times and sometimes it would just say something to you. And, and okay. well, usually it happened when, you know, the sweat leaders died. Another joke is like one of the, one of the announcers there... Like there's this traditional Soviet phrase. Well, you'll laugh, of course. It's when something bad happens, or like something super predictable happens, and you know you, you're supposed to laugh at this. That's, that's how they started in the comedy shows. And one of these things is that uh, the, this radio turns on, and the host says, "Well, you'll of course laugh, but once again, massive tragedy has struck our wonderful nation, <laughs> Mr. Andropov." Has- <laughs>
0: Okay, I, I didn't know about that. That's, that's really interesting. So it it was always on, but it would only speak whenever there was a news flash or a or a big event. Yeah, but you couldn't that, turn it off. Post...
1: It was a little white box. It's just a little right. white box. It's basically it just stuck to, to the,
0: wall. the wall. Yeah. Ah. And, okay.
1: And, and noticing that it was mostly because a lot of people lived in the communal apartments there because due to the fact that the Russian army officers and everyone, because we were in the western, western side of the Soviet Union, right? So a lot of people just got moved in and the Soviets came in. They just basically threw out a lot of people from their apartments so that, you know, our ex-cultural and societal leaders uh, got thrown out of their apartments and sent to gulags and Soviet officers took their place in. And of course, you know, a lot of... A lot of religious people, the Jews, suffered a lot from this as well. You know, a lot of people got thrown off from the apartments so that the Soviet army officers had somewhere to live in. And everyone was mm-hmm. basically stuffed into these communal flats. And you had one in this communal flat, basically next to your electricity kind of counter thing. It was just in the center. Right. It would be like really loud. Yeah. And then, okay. and then, you know, when you're stuck in with an apartment where you have like a schedule about who uses uh, the oven and when you can go to the bathroom... And and then you have this radio thing; it kind of becomes a part of your everyday life. But then, yeah. okay, everything everything really does. And I think about this whole nuclear war thing and how I view it as. Then, I recently came back from Ukraine. You you might have heard about this because I, I did. I, yes, I, I, yes. I, I went yes. to the Donbas regions and I went went and see the saw the war and and what struck me the most is the fact that I think it I think it got normalized in a way. You know, I kind of tend to look at this from a more philosophical perspective because I'm I'm a huge fan, by the way, of In Our Time series. I love that show. Oh, yes, me too. too. (laughs) It's great. And I love how they they look at the things philosophically and when I understood that. I think those little things that you had to share your apartment and that you were like scared about the Western generals throwing nukes at you and having this little radio. People get get used to this because even today, even today in Ukraine, I I spoke with, with an army officer there who just commonly told me, like, with a blank expression on his face without any emotions whatsoever, that, um, that, yeah, he joined the military because, well, yeah, his best friend got, you know, shot by a rocket while he was just, you know, driving his taxi. So he, you know, grabbed his pals' body together, scraped his brains literally from the asphalt and everything, and then he decided that, yeah, well, he'll get buried, but, you know, something must be done, so I just joined the army. And he's literally just completely chill without any uh without any emotions telling me this while while we're sitting in a basement of a house and i'm being shelled uh, yeah. yeah and i i think i think the attitude's kind of stuck in as well because uh, you can only get stressed for for such a long time same as in same as in world war one if you think about it there occur, like constant shellings and whatnot you have to think about the fact that at one point it just becomes hilarious you know it's sad it's desperate it's a situation you never want to be in but, but at one point, your stress level just breaks down. You, you simply cannot stay as high on the stress levels as you possibly could. So mm-hmm. this got normalized, this kind of, you know, living in a totalitarian system, which already tries to control you all this time, and you have to worry about your old, every day-to-day business, which kind of led us to you nuclear total extinction in a different light than in the West. We were kind of like, yeah, whatever. It's like, <laughs> sure, bomb us. Uh, because because we we already were living in such terrible conditions for the most part that yeah that it was like well uh, might as well nuke us so that that's that's why I quoted these kind of these Soviet jokes about this whole situation because these political jokes kind of provided this release from this constant stress because you know you can only it's kind of like a spring it can only be squeezed to the maximum amount of pressure only yes. for so long yes. before before you kind of you know have to let go.
0: Could I just ask more? I'm fascinated by this this radio in the apartment. I read in Svetlana Alekseevich's book, Secondhand Time, which is about how ordinary people remembered the fall of the Soviet Union. Some of the people in the book said that they would often, if they wanted to talk in their apartments, they were afraid of of, of it being bugged or of, of being overheard. So they would all gather in the kitchen and some people might put a cushion or a blanket over the telephone to try and muffle any, any bugs that might be there and everyone would talk in, in the kitchen Oh, yeah, to, of course. to have it, some kind of privacy, is, is that even, right?
1: It even has a saying here, it's called kitchen politics uh, because of this whole situation it got a special tile that you know there are some things that you want to speak in the public and some things called kitchen politics which you only discuss in your <laughs> kitchen, yeah okay, that, that still happens to this day because you know you go to the kitchen and you know we're all pretty heavy smokers here because yeah right. people would muffle this because again the idea that people live in constant paranoia people were not we were in the soviet union at least at least at least how i've gotten it from my listeners and people whom i've interviewed i know the people in the west were afraid of nuclear war right over here Mm -hmm. we weren't afraid of that we were afraid of the kgb much more than that because after we got access to the archives we often found out that hey it was our neighbors who kind of denounced us to get the biggest share of their apartment or some wealth or something it's kind of pity human reasons, uh, especially. Yes. But that also happened in East Germany, and we were afraid of that happening all the time. And if you managed to go to kind of another country, especially if you managed to get a trip to the Western countries, then you would surely know that in your group there was someone who was a KGB reporter who would later then write a report on you, and you also had to write a report. Every course, every school, everywhere, there was a KGB presence constantly, but they worked in a, in a kind of a devious way which kind of separates how I think at Western Europe from Eastern Europe at this point, because you guys are more trusting. You guys are nicer to each other. Over here, <laughs> it was like this idea that anyone, anyone can be a you know a secret agent. Anyone can be a, yeah. working with the KGB. So we, we're kind of less trusty, I suppose. And, you know, from my experience, especially talking with the people from the West, I mean... You're nicer to each other. You're more eager to help each other. We're kind of way more suspicious. So okay. in a way, in a way, we were paranoid constantly, but about the KGB more than the nuclear extermination, because there isn't a single person in Latvia and the Baltics in general, and on all these territories which Stalin took over during World War II, that like all of our families have suffered from stalinist oppressions everyone knows Mm -hmm. someone who's been sent to the gulags who's been shot in the prisons who's been oppressed for various very stupid reasons right we all we all knew this and that that hurt us more so in a way in a way we made jokes about the nuclear annihilation because for some people that i know at least from from my maybe not my parents generation but my grandparents generation definitely they would probably see uh death and a nuclear fire as some sort of a release even might sound uh-huh. might sound scary and depressing yeah. to you but uh the level of Stalinist-era oppressions is truly comparable to, to Hitler's Germany. At least that's my personal view. Yeah, nuclear nice. nuclear holocaust just was like a secondary thing to us. It was just wow after after everything that had happened to us, dying in a nuclear fire was like, well, if it happens, it happens. What the what the f- ever? I'm sorry, but that's a precision yeah. f- bomb here. But. Yeah, we just didn't care about it. We just didn't think about this as much as people in the West did. Because for, yeah, yeah. for us, the normal existence, at least for a while, had been so terrible that that would be probably seen as a release.
0: Right. Because um, in Britain in the 1980s, for example, the threat of nuclear war it affected all aspects of culture. Um, pop music, for example, uh, novels, um, even comedies on TV. But I think maybe from what you're saying is in, in Riga or in, in the Soviet Union... People were more afraid of perhaps their neighbor, or what what their neighbor, or what their boss at work could do to them. They could report them to the KGB, yeah, and exactly. that was a bigger yeah. And if you and if you that's and
1: horrifying. And if you were a believing person, if you if you you know had if you were a Christian or had some faith, right. There were uh, people from the party stationed next to the churches on every Sunday who would just you know take notes and make lists about who went to church or who and who didn't and if you happen to be you know working in some factory, you could lose your job over that and then your family could get oppressed as well just for going to church uh-huh. on Sunday. So you right. know <laughs> see we, we didn't have much to lose, you see. <laughs>
0: going to bring part one to a close here but we'll continue with Kreevstaff's interview next week where we'll discuss the civil defence training given to every Soviet citizen including little kids at school and we'll look at how the West was portrayed by the Soviet leaders Kreevstaff tells me there were images of Margaret Thatcher for example as a shrunken vampire feasting on blood with John Bull <laughs> And also of American soldiers drinking the blood of Korean children to heighten their lust for killing during the war. He tells me these images were everywhere, even in children's books or on posters of the wall at your university or factory. And maybe I'm naive, but I was quite astonished by that. I'm grateful to Christas for talking to me, of course. And if you want to hear more from him, I do recommend his podcast, which is called The Eastern Border. I enjoyed conducting this interview, so if I have listeners out there from other foreign countries, anywhere outside Britain is what I mean by that, please do get in touch with me as I'd like to do more of these episodes where I can speak to people about how their own countries prepared for nuclear war and what it was like living under that nuclear threat. So get in touch either through my website, juliemcdowell.com, or through Twitter where I can be found at mcdowell. Here's a reminder that I go to London on Tuesday for some more nuclear business. I'll be appearing on a podcast to discuss Chernobyl and we will be recording an interview for another media outlet again about Chernobyl. It seems people are still very keen to talk about the disaster and of course I'm very glad to be invited to speak about it. I'll put up links to those podcasts and interviews on Twitter when they appear. I've got five days in London, so I'm going to also go to the British Library for nuclear research, and I will try and cram in a visit to the National Archives, where they have their Protect and Survive Cold War exhibit. I'll also have a free day on Sunday in London, and if the weather's good, and I'm not too exhausted, I'm going to take a few trips around the city to various sites of Cold War interest, take a few photos, maybe shoot some film and get these onto my long-neglected YouTube channel. That needs a good kick to get started. I'll be sending postcards from London to my patrons about my nuclear research, and I'll jot down some horror that I found in the British Library for them. If you want to join my Patreon and support my work, please do take a look at patreon.com forward atomichobo. Chris Stab's also sent me some Soviet civil defence information, leaflets, booklets, which I'll be sharing on our private Facebook group, which is for my top-level patrons. So do take a look at Patreon if you want to get on on that action. I'll also post a few images from it though on my Twitter account. So, let me know what you think of this interview format. Do you want to hear more of these? If so, get in touch and let me know. Here's a reminder that the music for this show is from X. Find them on Twitter at XBandUK. And let me thank all my patrons who make this podcast happen. And let me give a special thanks to Dan Breen, Gary Watson, Arika, Lucy Stegerwald, Jonathan Abelins, Heather Parker, Peter Mars, Tom Stickland, Yannick, Andrew Key, Sam Marco, Richard Grundy, Dave Marks, Alan Christie, Helen McHale, Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee, Sean Milson, Brian Outlaw, Damien Ryan, Peter Lee, Bruce Armstrong. John Haynes, Eamon Coyle, Julie Eake, Sarah Brassington, Nick Packham, Tara Moore, Simon Reid, Lynette Walsh, Christopher Creva, Richard Lewis, Adam Spink, Ian McCulloch, Linda Woolnuff, Kevin Bitter, Simon Allison, Sean Judge, Paul Maxwell-Walters, Wynne Grant, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve Sace, Claire Brennan, Paul Jonathan Viner, and Gordon McNair. That's quite a list and to think when I started up my Patreon account I was almost embarrassed and terrified that no one would sign up and I would have no names to read out and I would have to <laughs> set up a Patreon under a false name just for the sake of having one person on it so I'm so grateful that so many people have signed up. I'm very grateful to everyone So back next Sunday with the second half of Chris Stav's interview. I hope you've enjoyed it and of course thanks to Chris Stav and take a look at his podcast The Eastern Border